0: The Edition is sponsored by Crux, one of the world's leading boutique asset management firms specialising in Asian, European and UK investments. We invest for the long term and our dedicated team of investment professionals have decades of fund management experience between them. Visit cruxam.com for more information.
1: Hello and welcome to the Edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week, we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue and the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. This week, is the current NHS crisis a bug or a feature? Plus, how is the nation feeling about the Omicron variant? And finally, now it's December, can we open the Baileys? First up, in The Spectator's cover story this week... Our economics editor, Kate Andrews, writes about the state of the NHS and why even though reform is so clearly needed, it is nearly politically impossible to enact. She joins me now with Isabel Hardman, who is currently writing a book on the history of the NHS. Kate, you begin your article by saying that the NHS's problems are now getting so bad that people are starting to notice. Could it not be said, though, that a lot of the problems that you do cite in your piece... Slow ambulance pickup, long waiting lists, overcrowded A and E's. That these problems, they're uh, a knock on effect of the pandemic and lockdown. So much of this disruption was inevitable, was it not? not?
2: You can definitely make that case, and I think to some extent I do. The pandemic has revealed all of the strains that the NHS was under before, and in in some ways it has taken it to breaking point. But uh, I think a lot of patients out there will be very familiar with the idea of the NHS being in crisis because it doesn't necessarily take a lockdown. Every winter, we have the winter crisis, we have wards that are genuinely overflowing, people cannot get into beds, we have queues of ambulances, waiting times worsen. It is new in in the sense of how bad it is. We now have 5.8 million people on the NHS England waiting list alone, and counting, that number is going to go up. But internationally, waiting times, rationing, access to care, have all been problematic for a long time. Now, people often point to the equity in the NHS, that it is free at the point of use. So once you're in the building, it's very accessible. But as I point out in the piece, if you're one of these people who's giving up hope, waiting for an ambulance to come that hasn't arrived, or if you're one of these people whose GP still won't see them – free at the point of use, universal access, it doesn't mean as much. In fact, the NHS isn't really showing up for you at all. So we have to ask ourselves, if we really value universal access to healthcare, What needs to change at the NHS so it works better for patients and frankly for the doctors and nurses who are just so fatigued and tired from what they've had to go through for the past two years?
1: Isabel, do you agree with uh, Kate's uh, depiction of the NHS there as an institution that's in a rough shape and actually has been for rather a long time? You're you're writing a, a book on the institution at the moment. I mean, do you think this is a uniquely tough time for the NHS or has it weathered worse storms?
3: I think the the NHS, uh, thanks for the book plug, I need to finish it, but I think uh, (laughs) the NHS has always had big issues in terms of of staffing and financing because of the way it was set up. I mean, it was set up without enough doctors and nurses and very rapidly became hugely reliant on immigrant labour. And there were appeals made by uh, ministers, including Enoch Powell, who was health minister in the 60s, for a lot of doctors and nurses to come over from India, Pakistan and the Caribbean, just to, to keep the health service going. It was also set up on a, a false assumption that actually a, a universal health service would in time, and, and not particularly long period of time, cost less because it was treating people's problems quicker and better. What obviously happened uh, and, and caused a lot of consternation within the first decade was that the cost just spiralled and spiralled because there was so much unmet need so i I, it's always been on the the edge of crisis and it's always strangely had a lot of the same problems and complaints from staff that Kate details in her piece in this week's magazine which is that there's a very short-sighted approach to training up staff so I was listening to some interviews with doctors in in the 1960s again they were complaining that the government never thinks about how many doctors it's going to need in 10 years time I mean governments don't tend to think about anything happening in 10 years time because the assumption is that they'll all be out of government by that point and it'll be someone else's problem we have that issue at the moment. There's no planning for for future workforce and there hasn't been any planning for for workforce for for about 20 years. So these problems are, I mean, it is a little bit like reading Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun in the (laughs) NHS. And another thing that Kate points to in her piece is, is this sort of religiosity about the health service, where really if you start questioning the way in which it's structured, the way in which it is funded, you are in some way anti-fairness anti-doctors anti-nurses anti-people surviving and it it becomes very very difficult to have a debate because it it, immediately it moves and I'm sure Kate will get this this accusation even though she squares it off very neatly by saying she's not really praising the American system by no means Uh, there's always that accusation of you just want an American health system whereas there are amazingly, more countries in the world than just Britain and America. Most of them have come up with radically different health systems. No one ever talks about the Netherlands. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so on the, the that point about no one ever talks about the Netherlands, you praise a, a hybrid system, I suppose, of private and public systems of healthcare. Hmm. Um, but you also say that politicians don't want to mention NHS reform because it's seen as a euphemism for selling off the NHS. And so where do you think this fear of privatised medicine in the UK comes from? And do you think we are at this point, as Isabel mentioned, where you you almost can't criticise any shortcomings of the NHS uh, at all?
2: Oh, we're we're definitely there. We've been there for a a long time. And I, I don't know what will change that. I do wonder with the situation so dire now. I mean, it's just estimated this week that between... 240,000 and 740,000 patients with suspected cancer will have missed getting urgent referrals during because of lockdown now not all of those people will have cancer but many of them will many of them will be relatively young and many of them will have a far worse outcome now than they might have had had they been diagnosed earlier we are just at the tip of the iceberg in, in discovering all the consequences of, of what's happened and the trade-offs and I think the question won't necessarily be well did this have to happen because broadly speaking the UK. The way that we lock down and the necessity around it is is broadly agreed, but how quickly can the NHS catch up? And, and that's what the piece gets into slightly as well, looking at some of those other systems that are not the United States, where you see that every major healthcare system took a hit, but not as badly often as the NHS. I should say that this data is new and it's really difficult to get because a lot of countries simply aren't reporting yet. Last year, for example, in the first weeks of lockdown, appointments with oncologists for cancer patients dropped by 33 percent in Germany now that's a stark figure but in the UK it dropped by 61 percent. Sweden breast cancer referrals were down 10 percent in the first 10 months of last year and in Britain they were closer to 30 percent. These are really big differences and the systems that we're talking about to the hybrid point will are systems that uh, have universal access to healthcare. This is the big con, um, sort of the, the, the false premise that we have in this debate, and, and Isabel got to it directly, which is that it's either the NHS or the USA. But actually... Virtually every developed country apart from America offers universal access to healthcare. It's just that a lot of them discover pragmatically, putting ideology aside, that systems can run far more efficiently and better for the patient if the government covers the cost of healthcare, but you bring in the private sector and the charity sector to help with the provisions, to help run healthcare, to give patients more choice, often to let the money follow them. These are not scary systems. In many ways, they're not privatized systems. I guess it really depends on how you want to define that word. But the problem is that you know all the major parties the tories absolutely included have just buried their head in the sand on this boris johnson once upon a time spoke about how we can uh, reform the nhs but since he's actually grabbed real power on a campaign trail for instance he grabs a phone out of a journalist's hand so he doesn't have to look at a young boy waiting in an nhs corridor he jumps in a fridge so he doesn't have to talk about these things and until somebody's actually willing to confront it with real power we're not going to have change
3: i think that you You're putting your finger on a political reality here, though, which is that the Tories will probably never have the permission of the public to reform the NHS. And we've talked about the debate moving on to privatisation, but I think more widely, even with voters who just want the NHS to work. Mm. The Tories have always had a precarious uh, level of trust when it comes to uh, reforming the NHS. Labour has has had the permission, but not necessarily the will. Well, largely because of forces within uh, the party itself, where you have anyone who wants to talk about reform immediately again being accused of privatisation. And talking to senior Tories, Uh, about how the party's relationship with the health service has changed over the decades. They're all agreed that there's just no point politically Mm. in even debating the need for an overhaul because they will not get a hearing. And so they have come to accept, and I really think this has happened since... They got back into power in 2010. So since really the the sort of last big attempt at talking about this was Liam Fox and patient passports back when uh, the Blair government was in power. Since then, the Tories have just accepted there is no point in talking about a different system. They've got to work with what they've got. And what they are now doing is what every government since really you know the 60s but particularly the 80s 90s has done which is to move things around (laughs) Um, move little flags around on the map to put their mark on the health service and make it work better in some way before discovering that they've actually created a sort of whack-a-mole problem somewhere else and then have to reform it again in 10 years but the idea that they would touch discussions about funding is politically for the birds sadly, I think, because, you know, we should be able to in this country have a debate about everything. But this is this is one topic that you can't debate, even if you would end up with the same answer.
1: Hmm. So Isabel, um, in terms of the Labour Party, then, I mean, is the party presenting a viable alternative to any of the problems Kate raises in her article? Or is it just a case of uh, whatever the Tories are spending uh, on the NHS, it's it's just not enough?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the sort of rejoinder that Labour and a lot of people in the NHS would make is look it's it's all very well talking about different systems but why don't we fund the system that we have at the moment properly and crucially the two things that are holding it back and making it much more costly on a sort of short-termist basis are the workforce issue which I've already talked about and social care and this week we've had a white paper on social care which if this fulfills Boris Johnson's promise to fix social care once and for all it suggests he doesn't really think it's that broken because it's a very thin white paper with very unambitious proposals i think everyone in the the health sector is is agreed on that and the reason you have this huge demand for acute services is that we don't have a social care system in this country. We have a a cobbled together social care crisis, basically. And so until you actually fix those two things, until you stop the Treasury from blocking proper workforce planning in the NHS, so we are training up uh, enough doctors and nurses, until you reform social care so people aren't stuck in beds in hospital or going into hospital because actually their, their basic needs aren't being met at home, then you're just going to lurch from crisis to crisis without even being able to, you know, talk about the the ins and outs of NHS organisation, reorganisation, funding, and so on.
1: Hmm. Kate, okay, you mentioned in your piece and earlier in this uh, this podcast that, that Boris, in 2002, uh, when he was Spectator editor, as well as a, a uh, MP, uh, how he voiced very similar sentiments to yours. And, you know, he's changed his position a lot as a journalist, of course. Um, do you think that uh, the idea of Boris, uh, well, when Boris tied the idea of the NHS and NHS funding to the Brexit campaign, do you think that tied his hands, politically speaking?
2: I think it did. I had a government advisor make the interesting point to me recently that you can tie so much of this government's agenda to what was said in the Vote Leave campaign, for obvious reasons, because Boris was at the front of it. And, you know, for better or for worse, and I would argue for worse, he has tied more spending on the NHS to that Brexit campaign, to delivering Brexit without asking any meaningful questions. So, I mean, we're in a very unique position now, actually, where calling for more money full stop doesn't make loads of sense because according to the OECD, in terms of a percentage of GDP, the UK is now the second biggest spender in the OECD, only second to the notorious US spending on healthcare. And, you know, we've already kind of hinted that that nobody's looking to replicate them in, in, in terms of how much they spend and certainly not in terms of system. But the complaint, you know, years ago used to be, well, if only we funded the system like our European counterparts do. Well, in 2020, we were. And, you know, it was a very difficult year. Year, but you would still expect to see then some better outcomes if this is really about money when it comes to COVID, when it comes to bouncing back with non COVID surgeries and operations. And again, the preliminary data shows the opposite. Well, so I I note that, that, you know, the cabinet is increasingly split on this. Some members of the cabinet are less interested in throwing more money into what they consider to be a a, a black hole. But unfortunately, the, the prime minister isn't one of them. So we are going to be spending a lot more money on healthcare for the foreseeable future. And I'm not at all convinced going to get better outcomes for it.
3: One thing I think is really interesting, its sort of difference from the Blair years, which is when we saw the last big waiting list crisis and a a big set of reforms to accompany it, is I don't see the same, uh, this might be a good thing, the same focus and anxiety in the government about this. Because back in 2000, Blair and his colleagues basically concluded that the NHS was was about to lose public support that people were going private as they are now in in a lot of cases particularly with GPs to just to get the treatment they felt they needed uh, in a timely fashion and that the NHS was in the words of Alan Milburn in the last chance saloon and their response to that was to set these waiting time targets and really to have this control freak culture where they were basically saying look we're putting lots of money into the health service you hospital X have not met your targets so we're going to shout at you and I don't see that pressure coming from the Tory government to get those outcomes and That might be a good thing because we did, towards the end of the Labour government, have the mid-staffs crisis, which was partly as a result of pressure from the top on hospitals to meet targets like the waiting time target in A&E. But I just wonder whether there's the same focus in government on cutting that waiting list down because they see an existential threat to the NHS, or whether they've really become quite complacent that it's always going to be there. So, pfft. <laughs> if podcast listeners can hear that noise yes that was a pff. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great and, facial expression uh, too It was. <laughs> and on the pff,
1: isabel and kate thank you very much indeed and if you'd like to hear more about how the nhs is doing in the wake of covid do listen to isabel's aftershock podcast links are in the description below Next up, news of the Omicron variant has not only worried the public about what may become of their Christmas plans, but the government has also reacted by bringing in new travel restrictions and mask mandates. Two of our columnists, Lionel Shriver and Rod Little, have both given their views on the latest pandemic precautions in this week's magazine, and they both join me now. Lionel, in your piece, you describe uh, the Prime Minister's weekend announcement regarding the new uh, Omicron variant as Groundhog Day. Uh, can you just explain uh, briefly to our listeners your uh, pessimism about the situation?
4: Um, I should clarify that I expressly did not compare it to Groundhog Day uh, because.
1: <laughs> oh yes, because it's too generous to the. It's to, to the...
4: far too generous. Groundhog Day is a wonderful film. Yeah. It's one of my favorites, and it's not boring. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid government policy in relation to COVID is very boring. Uh the soul of monotony. It is the cliché. This is this is groundhog day. And we've been here before and it's always the same. Uh usually an overreaction. It's always instituting more restrictions which have dubious epidemiological value. I, I would say close to none. It's gestural. And we're being conditioned to accept these over and over again and never to question whether or not they have effect on a virus that has its own intentions, you know, and seems to blithely go through the population regardless. I'm not dissing the vaccination drive. I am now, as of two days ago, triple vaccinated, so I'm not not one of the evil (laughs) anti-vaxxers. but I've had it with these restrictions. They don't work. And we'll be better off just to get on with it. And my larger point as well is a more global than having to do with UK policy per se. And that is that natural immunity is proving much more effective, or certainly at least as effective and and definitely longer lasting than vaccine-induced immunity. And that for the Better part of the world, especially the developing world, that's probably the way out of this
1: mm. Rod, in your column, you say that you're something of a centrist when it comes to masks. I wonder if you could describe that that position and and do do you think then perhaps you do, do you disagree with with Lionel when she says in her column that the patchy arbitrary applied mask requirements might as she thinks have a negligible impact on the virus
5: yes i mean i don't often disagree with Lionel I think I do here quite clearly, uh, whether Lionel likes it or not, there is a proven efficacy of wearing masks. It's not huge, no one will pretend it's huge, but it slightly reduces transmission of the virus. My evidence for that comes from Nature magazine, which did a kind of pull together of all the surveys which have been done on mask wearing. Um, I don't like wearing a mask, But it's hardly a great imposition, is it? It's hardly the storming of the Winter Palace, you know, (laughs) to be asked to wear a mask to go into Sainsbury's. I mean, come on. We can can live with that for a little while, can't we? I don't think it means that we are being conditioned through some form of symbolism to be silent uh, or to comply, Uh, though I think there is a tendency on the left uh, to yearn for... For, for things with which to comply, for compliance and for subjugation. Uh, it's a strange psychological phenomenon. But by and large, I think the government had to react to a virus which it didn't know very much about and still doesn't know very much about. We don't know very much about it. Uh, Lionel may be right that uh, in the end, national immunity is the key to this. Uh, In the short term, though, many, many people would have died in this country had we relied on natural immunity, uh, who wouldn't have died otherwise. So there is a necessity, I think, to try to protect those who are the most vulnerable. And if by wearing a mask, going into Sainsbury's, you know, I'm contributing towards that, I don't have a huge problem with it. Mm. I will not, however, go out on a Thursday evening and bounce saucepans together for the NHS. <laughs> <laughs> Lina, would you like to respond
1: to to, to Rod's uh, Rod's point there about 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 masks and your position on natural immunity.
4: Well, um, I don't often disagree with Rod either, so this yeah. is interesting. Um, obviously, there is a tendency to cherry pick which studies you prefer because. We all have, uh, I'm afraid, pretty hardened attitudes towards masks. And so I, of course, uh, prefer the more scientifically valid studies that use uh, randomized control trials. And uh, of the randomized control trials uh, that I know of, uh, last I read, there were eight of them that were pretty reputable. Uh, only one of them showed any effect. And even that was extremely small. So I I think that to regard this as settled science is a mistake. And I also think it's a mistake to regard it as a negligible imposition. I'm certainly with Rod on finding it merely a nuisance to wear a a mask in a supermarket. And so I'm not, I I don't feel waves of self-pity every time I go into Tesco. But I do think it's a huge imposition on students uh, who have to wear those masks hours and hours. And uh, I think it impedes their education. I also find it a, a, a considerable imposition on staff, you know, employees who have to wear masks for eight hours a day. That's not a small matter. Hmm. It's physically uh, unpleasant. It's not good for you. It shoves your carbon dioxide levels into the stratosphere, which is very unhealthy. Um, so those are the people that, that I really feel sorry for, and and that means that, that this is not that small. I also think symbolically it isn't small. It creates an atmosphere of continued emergency. And if we really are trying to arrive at the point where, yes, we are trying to live with the virus it is becoming endemic, it's not ever going to go anywhere. Uh, it we, we are continuing this general feeling out and about that we're in an extraordinary time, we're in constant danger, and all our civil rights are out the window, and we just have to do what the government tells us to.
1: Well, on the point about emergency, perhaps, uh, well, Rod, in your piece, you also mentioned the online safety bill, uh, which you say you're, you're worried that it could ramp up Uh, the hysteria when it comes to COVID. Um, Could you explain a little about that, please?
5: Yeah, before I do that, just to agree with Lionel about uh, children, which I didn't mention in my piece, I think think she's absolutely right. I I think that school kids shouldn't have to wear masks. And I I have no doubt whatsoever that it it is, and and social distancing indeed, Um, given that the virus has such a scant effect upon them, and given that they also seem, not to transmit the virus with any great efficacy either. Uh, that they certainly shouldn't be wearing masks and shouldn't be socially distancing. I I agree with that. On the other issue that the Lionel wrote, uh, raised on uh, wearing of masks for people who work in shops and the frontline workers, as they are. Uh, somewhat embarrassingly called these days well <laughs> uh, there I think that's why we're wearing the masks primarily that's certainly when I go into that I, I think it's a to give a degree of confidence albeit if Lionel is to be believed and I don't quite go along with Lionel on the efficacy of masks it's a false confidence <laughs> that they are being protected somehow uh, I think it, it, it is those workers who just uh, through avoiding that thing we call viral load and it it is something to reassure them. I don't have an objection with that. Uh, The second point on the online safety bill, I I wrote that piece because I I made the mistake of being on social media, uh, (laughs) uh, Facebook particularly, Uh, I don't go on Twitter, uh, Facebook for an evening, and um, it was a moronic inferno. It was was an insanity of polarised opinion. The left insisting that anyone who didn't wear a mask was a fascist including that moron Jenny Eclair saying that she would punch someone in the face uh, or that she should have the right to punch someone in the face if she she saw them not wearing a mask on public transport Uh, and uh, other useful idiots like James O'Brien and and again I I think this is left-wing it is it is typical left-wing virtue signaling is a cliche but that's what it is uh, it's not about protecting people it's about showing how pious they are but then on that same side on, on the other side rather there was the right screaming as this uh, as if this had been the invasion of Crimea you know <laughs> and, and it's not and screaming that we were all being controlled by Bill Gates and, and all I mean there's a there's a spectrum of right-wing opinion which goes from from the sensible, which is uh, awareness about masks, basically, to the far right, which is we are being controlled, we are being told what to do. It's the big tech companies. Rishi Sunak's got shares in the vaccine companies. Uh, we're all being conned. And it was it, it was just this madness. Uh, and I, I suppose that's a function of the immediacy of the internet.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: but And it's also obviously a function of us as human beings. But it's why I tend to take us... A centrist line in this. I just yeah, both sides of it really appall me, to be honest. Yes,
4: I'll tell you one scenario that especially bothers me that I'm I've been seeing a lot, and I'm not sure that the new rules have really changed this. If you go to a function or a restaurant, but especially like a a, a large function, and uh, all the people who are in attendance are not wearing masks. And the people serving you are wearing masks. And I, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know? No, no, no. I that don't like the way that things, feels. Yeah. I don't like the way it looks. I think we should all be wearing them or the, the staff should be allowed to take them off. But it's, a, it's creepy.
5: Yes, it's, it's got the whiff of squid game about it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, and I, I don't doubt either that, that there are those who are more put upon by both lockdown and masks than, than you know, your average uh, middle-class scribbler uh, like us, I suppose. Well, the online safety bill, what, what the, the, the thing that bothered me was that this is due to come in, it's now in draft form, uh, uh, a white paper, which it's in draft form at the moment. The things which are merely problematic or which they consider harmful, and by they we mean Nick Clegg and Facebook considers harmful, can henceforth be banned, can be taken down, uh, can be removed, censored. And I just got the feeling, and that's really what the piece was about, is that this this assault on our liberties, and I think that is an assault on our liberties, Mm. will entrench that divide between left and right, and particularly on the right uh the the people who have their doubts about vaccines and some of those doubts have been proved to be absolutely correct even though Facebook took them down in the early days have doubts about mask wearing and as Lionel has has explained there may be some truth in that as well these things are going to be henceforth samizdat and therefore it will entrench in the minds of those people the view that there is indeed a conspiracy against them (laughs) and and uh I think that is a very, very corrosive thing to happen.
1: Well, Lionel, as, as someone whose uh, uh, columns for The Spectator on COVID have in the past fallen foul of, of censorship, uh, I imagine you you agree with Rod's concern on, on this point?
4: Entirely. We are right back in <laughs> each other's pocket, as usual. Good. Um, good. Very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> what a relief. That was very uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I'm leery of the language in this bill, and I was glad that Rod called our attention to it. Alarm bells go off for me whenever anyone uses that word harm. You know, harm has become an umbrella term for anything you don't like or that you can claim hurts your feelings, usually disingenuously. In other words, you disagree with it, and therefore it hurts your feelings. So that word shouldn't belong anywhere in the bill. And I'm also uneasy with the uh, the language of misinformation. I mean, that's a very subjective category also and has been used already against me. Uh, in one instance, a, a column was, uh, it was an audio of a column was taken down because I was quoting statistics uh, it, it, that came from the New York Times of a study at Columbia University. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't get better more liberal bona fides than that but they but you know the powers that be didn't like what that study demonstrated and it, therefore it had to go away yes. and I, and we can now you know there there are lots of things in covid's a very good example but this this is not the only sphere where misinformation so called is an issue there are many debatable matters with covid you yes. know Vaccine efficacy, where where the where COVID came from, et cetera. We we're all aware of. There are many differences of opinion, and yet because we have politicized a public health issue disastrously, mm-hmm. there are there are only particular positions on these debated points uh, that are acceptable on the left and right. And the left, as we know, is much more dominant in the social media sphere. So, I I mean, I'm I'm sympathetic with the government's intentions here, but I'm afraid that the actual result would be to bring in greater political control and, as Rod notes, greater political paranoia on the right. Also, comments
5: on, on Facebook and Twitter, which suggested that there was a link between the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine and blood clots were taken down and there was a link between the AstraZeneca vaccine and blood clots. You know, it was a truth and there have been plenty more examples of that. I mean, the the greatest example wasn't COVID. Like Lionel, I have very little time indeed for Donald Trump, but the way in which social media, thinking of that term misinformation and, uh, and harm, actually prevented the Trump side from making their case in the run-up to the uh, to the presidential election, particularly concerning uh, issues regarding Joe Biden's wayward son and his various Ukrainian dealings, <laughs> uh, was was utterly. Remu- it, it was I found it chilling, genuinely chilling, that that could happen in a democracy, uh, and and I think that is what we're beginning to see here with all this c- concern about, as Lionel rightly puts it, harm and misinformation. It, it, it can sometimes be in the eye of the beholder.
1: And on that point of agreement, we'll have to leave it there. Rod and Lionel, thank you very much. And finally, now it's December, Christmas celebrations can begin. Our own Hannah Tomes has written about one of her favourite festive delights, Bailey's. She joins me along with another Irish cream connoisseur, my fellow edition host, Laura Prendergast, and the Spectator's deputy editor, Freddie Gray, who heard we were drinking Baileys and couldn't resist. Hannah, you write in this week's Spectator about your love of Baileys. What is it do you think you love about the drink?
0: I think, one, you can have it in all kinds of situations. It's very much like I'm happy to have Baileys on my own, like in, if you're going, just about to go to bed or something, it's quite a nice one, but also it's quite a good pub drink. I also break the rules on it and have it in the summer, which a lot of people think is
7: very weird. But I love it over ice. I think it's really refreshing. Yeah,
1: well, Laura, you're also a fan. Do you break the rules as well have it all year round? Or do you think it is just a Christmas drink?
7: Well, I, I am a fan, but I'm, I'm actually quite a recent fan, which is surprising because I do love all kinds of milky drinks. But I only really discovered Baileys properly last year during lockdown. And as Hannah points out in her piece, the supermarkets often have a very good deal on Baileys. I'm not quite sure why that is, but they do. And I just found myself drinking a lot of it last Christmas. In fact, it's kind of one of my overriding memories of Christmas last year was drinking Bailey's and it's delicious it's really yummy and yeah but Will you're not a fan?
1: No I'm not I actually sort of hate Bailey's I'm afraid and I might I think I'm a real minority in this office because everyone else seems to love it and uh, perhaps people might say there's a bit of snobbery about it on my part.
7: Do you think it's a bit de classé <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I don't know. I just. I think what I don't like is the mixture of alcohol and dairy products. Like that's just a bit odd. I don't think I like. I dislike white Russians for a similar reason. I. I sort of. It. It, it feels very deeply wrong to me. But I know that I'm, I'm outnumbered um, in this office and certainly on this podcast, because Fred's here as well, who, yeah. who also loves... Um, I think it's great. I get what you're saying. There is a
6: slightly sort of emetic thing about yeah. spirits and, and... Do you dairy. think it's
1: seen as like a female drink? I think so. so I'm like a, a snob and a sexist, is what you're saying. Very
6: trashy it? adverts, I think. Like Tia Maria has a sort of trashy advert. It's seen as sort of, you know, a bit, a bit naff, I suppose. Yeah. But for me, I love Bailey's, but for me, Bailey's is always tainted uh, with guilt because when I was 14, uh, we went on a school trip, uh, and my friend Tom Ferber, who actually listens to this podcast, so I hope he'll appreciate the story. Tom Ferber, we, um, and there was another boy called Chris Roberts who looked very old, and we got him to buy some little bottles. Probably shouldn't confess to a crime. <laughs> uh, anyway, and then we took the bottles back to the museum that we were looking around, I can't remember what museum it was, and then uh, we went into the bathroom, and I was necking a tiny little miniature bottle of Bailey's. And as I was necking it back... The teacher walked in. I saw him out the corner of my eye, and just my cowardly instincts took over, and I just handed it to my friend Tom Ferber, and I just walked out the door, and he got caught, and he didn't dob me in, and he got suspended, uh, and we've remained friends. I'd like to say now, I'm very sorry, Tom. Uh, I let you down.
1: Well, Hannah, that story is a little bit similar to your story you write about in your piece about how Bailey's was the first alcoholic drink that you ever ever uh, got drunk on with your with your with your friend. And uh, I wonder if, do you reckon that there's a part of the reason a teenager, it might be the first alcohol they kind of uh, properly drawn to is because it it does rather taste a bit like just (laughs) it's chocolate milk, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I think we must have been about 14 or 15. I don't think either of us had really drank very much before. Um, And we found it in her parents' cupboard right hidden at the back. And I think we were a bit like, oh, well, it's at the back. So they probably don't drink it very often. So I pulled it out took it to her room and drank the whole bottle and were absolutely smashed because it's 17%, which obviously we <laughs> were teenagers didn't realise that it was strong because it tastes like chocolate milk, as you said.
1: So we're going to end this podcast with a taste test for for the four of us to find out uh, who's the true Baileys connoisseur um, and also to see if any exposure therapy can uh, convert me to, to liking this, this, uh, this drink. And Hannah writes about in her piece how... Different supermarkets have tried to come up with their own brand and um our podcast producer has set up three different uh drinks, Bailey's and then the two knockoffs, for us to try. One is the real deal, one's from Aldi, and the the third is from Little. Okay, so this is shot A and I expect tasting notes afterwards.
7: I mean, it tastes like Bailey's. Yeah,
1: it does. <laughs> it's really good.
6: It's very soothing, it's isn't delicious. it? Delicious. So
1: nice. Absolutely yeah. disgusting. <laughs>
7: I, <laughs> I, I think this is Bailey's, don't you? I think that's Bailey's, yeah. but then it, I mean the other does, ones... Uh, but I
0: haven't tried the others, they might all taste. But this I, one was was really very creamier, I was really interested in Hannah's piece
7: about the kind of quite cynical foundation story of Bailey's, mm. the kind of creation myth of it, because it basically sounds like it was dreamt up by two guys at Diageo trying to come up with a kind of a new, new drink, drink that they could flog to people. And you kind of make, it kind of makes me love it more, actually, that it is just like a really cynical drink. <laughs> Especially <laughs> that
0: they said to begin with, they blended whiskey and cream, and it was awful. And then they were it's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> "Chocolate, chocolate."
7: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you, it's not. You can't really tell it's whiskey. Maybe that's also mm. the kind of
0: yeah. Because I actually don't like whiskey in yeah, general. Yeah, no, whiskey
1: so just, yeah, see, I'm not very keen on whiskey either, and I definitely can taste <laughs> it, which is part of the part of the. You know, I I I, I like chocolate milk very much, but with the whiskey in it, I, it, it does it it does something. Very deeply wrong, I think. Uh, okay, shop shop B.
7: Ooh, this tastes. This smells more chocolatey.
1: No, this is this is Aldi, I think. Oh, that's,
7: that's much
6: sweeter. Yeah, that's not big. Yeah, that's, no, that's that's, that's 100%, 100%. That's purist. That that's pure, that's not,
0: And it's got it's a really.
7: nice,
0: tangy aftertaste.
6: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, it's
0: <laughs> nice in a different way.
7: That's more like a kind of pudding. Mm.
1: I think we should have got a sort of vomit bucket for so Will. Uh, seriously, Sam, I don't think I can do the last one.
7: Man up, man up. up. <laughs> drink your Bailey's. Shot That's more sort of aromatic. As a mm, I can't smell sure,
6: that I'm much better. No, this is my glass. least favourite of the three. Mm. I think they've got that's worse thinner. as we've
7: gone through them. Yeah, The first one's definitely Bailey's. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's nowhere near as good. <laughs> nice I hope it. you're
6: right.
0: <laughs> that tastes like it's been watered down. Yeah. Of, um, that one's not, that's the worst one. Whichever one.
1: <laughs> See, actually, I think that was the best one. Probably because it <laughs> doesn't taste of anything. Yeah. I could sort of drink sort of drink that? Are you. we getting the answers? Yeah. The first shot A was Bailey's. So we were all correct. B was Aldi, and C was therefore yeah. Little. Yeah. So everyone got it right. And it's definitely. <laughs> <flora>. <laughs> so be, apologies, yeah. apologies to Aldi, to Aldi and Little for for not. I um, passing. have let the side down there because actually
7: I would have liked to have liked their one. But well, apologies, apologies
1: to the two of them for for uh, not passing the the taste test, but they are up against some true connoisseurs. Bailey's is great stuff.
0: I was also worried that I was a bit of a label snob, but actually, apparently not.
1: (laughs) I'm just really satisfied that we got it right. Yes, No. congratulations, everyone. well done. (laughs) Thank you very much, all of you. Well, we had elves last week, Bailey's this week, so Christmas is definitely on the way. And for our special Christmas episode of the edition, Lara and I are going to be hosting a review of the year.
7: Yes, we're going to be covering UK politics, world events, the royals the dreaded Covid and more.
1: Make sure you subscribe to the edition podcast to be the first to catch the Christmas special. Thank you for listening. I've been William Moore and do join us again next week.
6: The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online. Plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk
5: voucher.